Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Life's Tough. You can be tougher. Our first podcast was less than two months ago, and since we started, we've had an impressive array of intriguing guests and free-flowing conversations. I'm Dustin Planholt, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show this evening with this week's special call-in guest, Orson Scott Card, a novelist who's best known for his science fiction. And in the studio with us is my friend and Sherpa and co-writer, Gerald Levin. Glad to have you along, Gerald. Thanks a lot, Dustin. I'm really pleased to be able to join you today. I'm excited to finally have you. It, instead of being in the back room, you're sitting at the table. That's right. Well, we're broadcasting from the Alston Carlisle studio in Baltimore, Maryland. Before we begin, I want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. POI is a private, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on the Baja California Peninsula. Get a safe, effective start on reclaiming your life at POI. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. And tell them Life's Tough sent you. Before we introduce our special guest, I'd like to briefly tell how I became familiar with Orson Scott Card as an author. After spending two years in California's foster care system, my mother brought my sister and I a month later to her home in Maryland, where she had begun a new life with her significant other, a recently ordained pastor. She and the man who became our stepfather were operating an evangelical Christian church in Baltimore. It had been my mother's dream to be a pastor's wife, and now she had realized it. To say they were enthusiastic in their own particular observance of Christian principles is a severe understatement, at least in the early days. Everything in our house revolved around the Bible, Tanil and I were expected to read it every day. If there was something bothering us, we were instructed to read more of it. To find something outside of that was considered psychobabble. The Bible, my mother would say, has all the answers. Why read anything else? And so, when I happened to stroll through a Barnes & Noble store, I was about 11 or 12 at a time, I picked up a copy of Orson Scott's card, 1985 mega-hit, Ender's Game. I bought it with money from my landscaping business, and I brought it home, where because of the religious doctrine that guided our family, I had to keep the book under wraps. Tennille and I, after all, had a slew of rules to abide by, rules that were different from the homes that we lived in in foster care. Aside from maintaining a focus on biblical passages, when Tennille and I first came to Maryland, we couldn't watch Care Bear cartoons on TV because such programs had magical elements. We also could only have Christian friends, preferably kids from our church. Halloween was also not allowed. These were the types of rules we lived with. 
With this kind of backdrop, the whole notion of getting a science fiction book to read, let alone enjoy, was an unauthorized aberration from our daily regimen. In some ways, it was an act of rebellion. Meanwhile, I have to wonder, was it also an aberration for Orson Scott Card, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, to sit down and write his science fiction book? In the home I grew up in, well, the belief was that we were the good guys and we were the only ones going to heaven. And then unless you asked Jesus Christ into your heart, you would not go to heaven for all eternity. And so for Orson to take on such risk or within his own group to find the courage, it's quite fascinating. It may have been at one time not allowed. However, it seems like attitudes have changed. We can talk to our guest, Orson Scott Card, about that in a minute. The point is, for me, reading Ender's Game transported me into a new realm, one that went far beyond my daily existence. I was a kid who had just come from foster care, a kid who had no friends, a kid who had no Christmases or birthdays, a kid who just wanted a normal life, a normal life where you believed in things that seemed impossible, that maybe one day I could meet an alien. Or maybe one day I could go into a spaceship. When I was young, there was this idea and belief that was, it would be impossible that you could carry around thousands and thousands and thousands of CDs in the palm of your fingertip. Well, now with the advent of technology, it doesn't seem so impossible anymore. And so the experience for me, reading Ender's Game, forever transported my mind into a world where anything is possible. And to discount that is to discount the very thing that got us here. Now, let's get to know Scott. Many will recognize Orson Scott Card as the author of Ender's Game, one of the all-time popular science fiction novels. Among the nearly two dozen books in the Ender universe is Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead. The author's works also include the Young Adult Pathfinder series and the fantasy trilogy that begins with a lost gate. He's written an American frontier fantasy series too, The Tales of Alvin Maker. Orson Scott Card is a writer extraordinaire with wide ranging interests. This has led him to also write contemporary fantasy, even biblical novels, poetry, and plays. Additionally, he reviews movies, TVs, books, and music. And he also responded to an email request from Dustin Planholt. Hey Scott, would you come on the show? Along with his writing endeavors, Card teaches occasional classes and workshops and directs plays while teaching, writing, and literature courses at Southern Virginia University. On a personal level, Card was born in Washington and grew up in California, Arizona, and Utah. During the early 1970s, he spent two years in Brazil on a mission for the Mormon Church. He currently lives in Greensboro, North Carolina, with his wife, Christine Allen Card. Welcome to Life's Tough, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing just great. Uh, I actually got something close to enough sleep last night, which for an old man like me is cause for happiness and gratitude. <laughs> but I was interested as you talked about your upbringing with the restrictions. Uh, you know, you, your family was clearly not even close to being Amish in, in your uh, uh, limitations, but uh, we had ours too. We were forbidden to watch television on Sunday. So when uh, the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan show, I missed it. 
Hmm. Uh, for about an hour and a half the next day, when all, that was all that the other kids could talk about, I felt like I was being uh, tortured and deprived. But um, eventually, you know, I've seen the entire performance, and you know, it's fine. It was fine. I lived through missing it. Um, but when it came to reading, we had a house with plenty of books. I was encouraged to read lots of fiction. Uh, and, he, and the funny thing is that didn't cut back on my scripture reading. Uh, my parents didn't have any assignment of any number of pages per day. But I read the, the Book of Mormon and the New Testament uh, before I was 10 and uh, knew them quite well and, uh, and eventually read all of the, the books that the Mormon Church regards as sacred uh, and a lot of other ancillary material as well so that I was theologically self-educated uh, in addition to the fact that the Mormon Church has a really strong program of educating its young people in the doctrines and history of uh, the Church. So uh, I had that intense religious upbringing, but without any sense of um, things I could not read. I remember my dad, uh, and this was back in the, the very early 60s, seeing me read a book from uh, uh, the school library on uh, early man, you know, pre, yeah. pre-homo sapiens, which... Uh, there are certainly plenty of Mormons for whom that would still be anathema. Yeah. Uh, but my dad, uh, who was the nephew of two apostles of the Mormon Church, so we were definitely inside, and he knew the upper echelons. But here's what he said to me. He said, well, he said, Scott, as you're reading this, just remember, if ever science and religion disagree, all that means is that one or the other or both of them is wrong. Hmm. Now, that that attitude meant, you know, the part of that that's actually embedded deep in Mormon theology, which is yeah. that we need ongoing revelation in order to uh, keep up. We don't think the Bible is a closed book. Yeah, uh, we think that Scripture continues and needs to continue because there are so many things that. Uh, we're simply unfamiliar, unknown. Yeah, we, we seem to, to keep being in, enlightened. There, there seems to be new well, new we, findings. We, we need it. Yeah, we need it. And so uh, it's a continuing source uh, and a continually changing uh, source of knowledge. Uh, But at the same time, we're also wide open to whatever science discovers. If it's part of the real world, God made it. And it's perfectly all right for us to use the methods of science, which, you know, science requires that you not explain anything by using divine intervention. That's just a requirement. Correct. It isn't science if you're doing that. It's, yeah. it's religion if you're, if you're uh, accounting for things that way. So that, so that actually leads me to my next, uh, or my first question for you. Have you sure. ever, and it sounds like maybe you haven't felt conflict, but you can, you can recognize that, that people like me, were, that there is some conflict based upon where you're living and the conditions. Why do you think there is this conflict between, the, the, let's say, the faith side and, and the science side, the science fiction aspect? Well, it's, it's, you know, there's so much history behind that. I can do three hours on that, um, but, but let's not. Yeah, g- g- give us uh, a three-minute. The, 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 the quick version is simply this. Um, there are people who want to feel that they have all the answers. And, and the way that you quoted your parents, they wanted to believe that. They felt that the answers were there in the Bible. Correct. The trouble is, whenever I hear, and, and Mormons will say this too, whenever I hear one of the members of my church say, I'm so grateful to, to be part of a church where we have all the answers. I can never just leave that unanswered. I have to say, you don't know all the answers because you don't even know half the questions. Yeah. 
Well said. And and it's our job to find the questions along with the answers. Yeah, it's how how old it's how long you been here? Thirty years, fifty, sixty. You're telling me you have all the answers, and you've only been yeah. here for sixty years on this earth. Well, and you know, and I I haven't even come up with you know with uh, I didn't come up with some of the best questions until I was in my fifties and sixties. Fascinating. How could I possibly have known the answers in my thirties? Now I will say that after much much study outside and inside the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Uh, I have uh, come to respect the contribution of Joseph Smith, uh, the revelations he received, as being simply the best explanation for uh, the natural universe that I found. It doesn't contradict science in any way. In fact, he embraced it. He got rid of the seven days of creation during his lifetime, and we've sort of jettisoned that now as being metaphorical. Uh, you know, what was a day before uh, the earth was spinning, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, I look at Genesis, and what I see is if you had a guy uh, in 1300 B.C. who saw a complete vision of the creation of the earth as we understand it now scientifically and of the evolution of life on earth, Mm -hmm. and then he had to explain it to people who hadn't seen it and whose experience was that of slaves in Egypt, uh, and some of them even quite educated, but nevertheless, uh, people who had no knowledge of science, he made the best sense of it he could and explained it as best he could, and the result was a magnificent account in Genesis. This is no the earth riding on the back of a turtle. This is an evolutionary story of the creation in which plants first, then animals, and you know, it's very orderly and not inconsistent uh, with science. Right. It, there, there wasn't this just chaos that all of a sudden came to be. There, there was this evolutionary That's right. process. You know, and there was none yeah. of this, and then so-and-so vomited this, and so-and-so laid an egg, and whatever it is. You know, none of those, none of those uh, fanciful stories. It's a very practical story. And so you know, my personal belief is that Moses did see a vision of how the earth came to be. And he told it as best he could. And that's what prophets do in every age. That's what the Bible is, is the best explanation of the light and knowledge that that prophets were given in their time. Now, what does that have to do with the Mormon Church? For many Mormons, uh, the fact that I write science fiction is a problem. Every now and then, I run into the fact that somebody says, oh, you know, well, Eckhart, he's he's not a good Mormon because he writes science fiction. But I also don't care, uh, because... The, the leaders of the Church have never tried to limit what I write. They have never told me that I did it wrong. They've never rebuked me. Uh, Sounds like there's some fact, great leadership. They, well, there is. And from time to time, they've called upon me. You know, when the, when the Church uh, was going to put on a big musical for the sesquicentennial of the arrival of the Mormon pioneers in Salt Lake Valley, I got the gig to uh, write the, the book and lyrics. Yeah. And... Uh, when they wanted to redo the uh, famous Mormon uh, pageant at Hill Cumorah in western New York, uh, which is close to the place where Joseph Smith received the Book of Mormon, um, they called upon me to do that. So it's the, officially the Church has found me able to be used. I'm not, I'm not uh, what can I say, I'm not excommunicable. Yeah, they, they still I'm like you, you're still one of them. They know I'm a faithful member of the Yeah, well, that leads, into our, that leads into the next question right. for you. Scott, yeah, well, this is Gerald. Um, so why do you think there are a number of Mormon authors who, who write science fiction and fantasy? 
Well, we Mormons are ridiculously overrepresented in the science fiction and fantasy <laughs> yeah, community. Yeah, we, we did a little research and said, is this real? Yeah, and when you figure that we represent maybe 1% of the population of the United States, active Latter-day Saints, church, church-going ones. Is that what it's up to now, 1%? Uh, oh, well, I, I, I'm extrapolating from the knowledge that we have about 6 million members worldwide, and about half the church is outside the U.S. and half is in. So uh, we we have about three million in the U.S., maybe more. But uh, as a as a percentage of the U.S. population, we're at about one percent and growing. Um, but um, the the percentage of Mormons writing science fiction and fantasy is way higher, hmm. which means that that a lot of people grew up as I did with no sense of hostility towards science fiction or fantasy. Uh, so it seemed to be embraced. Uh, it's not officially embraced by the Church at all. Uh, in fact, I once wrote a book that I refused to have sold in the state of Utah. It's a little independent uh, publisher that did a book called Folk of the Fringe. It's now published everywhere. Uh, Tor picked up the paperback, but, but when it first came out, it was an expensive little hardcover, and I just wouldn't let them fulfill any orders that went to Utah because it challenged a lot of people's folk beliefs, no no religious doctrines, but folk beliefs about uh, the future of the Mormon Church. I, I put the Salt Lake Temple underwater. Yeah. Uh, and so that... You challenged, I mean, you, you challenged well, some people's way of thinking. I ended up writing the most religious story of my life, uh, which is called Salvage. And uh, it's about guys who were sailing out, getting on a boat and going out to the spires of the Salt Lake Temple, which stick up above the uh, refilled Lake Bonneville. And and uh, the, the one guy who isn't Mormon at the time that he does it thinks they're going out there to get treasure. But no, what they find down in the water is that people have been going out there and they've been writing prayers on copper, on flattened out tin cans, on whatever they had and casting them into the temple so that it's still a religious shrine. And uh, he was very moved by that, and he he was also frustrated. He said, I thought I was going out there to get something for me, but it was all your stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and so, but, but, you know, I was dealing with religious feeling, which is a, an important thing, because there is no human being without religion, especially the people who are angrily and uh, proselyting atheists. Uh, their religion is so adamant that they're perfectly happy to persecute anybody who doesn't agree with them. That's the stage they're at in their development. And so where in the uh, Thirty Years' War in, uh, in Europe, uh, Christianity had to learn some kind of tolerance, some kind of live-and-let-live arrangement, and it's grown since then. Uh, the atheists have never had to learn that. They think they're the only true church, which is sad because, of course, atheism is such an intense act of faith. Uh, you can't possibly ever prove the non-existence of God. And so their adamancy about that is kind of amazing. It means that they believe their faith so much, so intently, without any evidence whatsoever, that they're willing to punish other people, to deprive them of their livelihood, uh, in the name of their religion. Uh, they mock and scorn and persecute all other faiths. So, so now that, let, let me ask you a, a question, kind of diving a little bit into that, because we, we've got a, an audience around the world, 
many non-believers see religion as sci-fi. So uh, the challenge is, how do you blend faith and science together where they can live harmoniously? So why do you think that non-believers do see religion? I mean, not just Mormon, it, it can be uh, it can be Christianity, it can be um, Judaism or any other uh, religious group. Why do you think they, they perceive uh, religion as science fiction? Well, um, you know, the, you, you've heard the mocking comments about uh, people who believe in the man in the sky who can do miracles on earth, etc., and use mocking tones, but that's really quite rare. Among people who have no particular faith in any of the uh, major world religions, or, or minor ones for that matter, um, most of them are just live and let live tolerant. In fact, many of them will say, well, yeah, I believe in God, I just don't know what, what if anything, he's ever said. Uh, and, you know, they're not satisfied with any existing religion. They don't want to join a club, which is how religion is often perceived. And I'm with them. If I didn't have the thorough grounding that I have in my faith in the, the doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ, I, I would be like them. I would like to think that I wouldn't persecute anybody for not believing my unbelief, but I also can't imagine myself uh, seeking out yeah. any other religion. There's been none, none other that drew me or attracted me or whose philosophy seemed to answer the questions that mattered to me. Which, you know, things like human freedom, uh, human accountability for our actions. Uh, why why could, could God hold us accountable for our actions if he made us to be the way we are? Aren't all of our choices then simply the result of what he made us to be? And in what sense could a just God punish people for being what he made them to be? It's just a foolish idea to me. But the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints answers it and answers it cleanly and clearly. I'm not here to proselytize, yeah. I'm just saying that for me, that was satisfying. Now, when you say science fiction is religion, or religion is science fiction to a lot of unbelievers, I've been saying for years that one of the reasons there are so many Mormon sci-fi writers is we're a science fiction religion. We literally believe that there are that there's more than one planet with life on it, with intelligent life. And that, by the way, uh, that doesn't seem too crazy to me, which leads me into a question for you. And this is something. So while we'll, uh, my, my partner, Gerald, and I here in the room, we've got a book coming out called Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. Uh, I'm also working on a, a book, a science fiction book called Watcherology, Field Guide for the Enlightened Ones. And I came up with this concept, at least this idea to me, that it seemed... It seemed easy and it seemed simple. And it was, what if Adam and Eve had parents? What if that the concept was, well, there had been some sort of evolution that had happened? What are your thought? What's your thought process on that, Scott? Well, you know, I don't have a final answer. If I find out that Genesis is literally correct, it's not going to disturb me. But it seems like, you know, if God did not use evolution, what's all this DNA business and why are we only just a couple of percentage points away from chimps? Well said. Uh, you know, so uh, I, I am unsurprisable because my faith is not based on a particular... It, it, is, not, it is not shaken by it, yeah. So that, that actually no, no, yeah, it gets yeah. into, the, for, for me, more of the ideology and theology of that if you, if, again, this is more of the concept of that there is a maker and there is a creator, well then why would the maker-creator create chaos and there was nothing before Adam and Eve to forever question mankind? It, it would create wars and problems. Uh, it, and I'm sure you know this, that in Fiji, there's this belief that this giant serpent laid two eggs and the egg was a man and the other egg was, was a female. 
which has and been... that was a very good plan. If you're going to lay two eggs, make sure that <laughs> that's all you're going to do. Make sure you got both sides. Can you write that into one of your next novels? There's this great story well, about it, <laughs> some eggs being... Well, no, but here, here's, the, here's the thing. You do have to understand, as you approach the idea of Adam and Eve having parents, etc., uh, you have to think who your audience will be, because the, I, I, I shudder to tell you this, but that is the cliché of clichés in science fiction stories. It's been around since the 1920s, since mm-hmm. the 1930s. Been around Stories started publishing science fiction, as Hugo Gernsback called it. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's one of the things that, that science fiction editors talk about is that they know that they're in terrible ground if they flip to the end and it says, well, Adam, let's live here then. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, that's... So I just want you to know that it doesn't mean you can't write it. I tell my writing students all the time, you can't write anything that hasn't been done before. Of course. There's yes, nothing There's nothing sure. under the sun. So let's talk outer space. Um, sure. Talking about other, uh, other forms of life throughout the universe. Um, tell us about that. I don't know anything about that because we've never found life anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. Uh, you know, I believe that there is life, but my guess is that the chemistry of carbon-based life is the only chemistry that works. Uh, so that we really are looking for uh, the Goldilocks planets in the Goldilocks zone that are the right size to be able to hold on to an atmosphere, unlike, uh, you know, Venus holds on to an atmosphere amazingly well. Mars shed its atmosphere pretty pretty early on. Uh, most of it, obviously, it has some, but not enough to sustain us. And so we're looking for planets in the Goldilocks zone that have all of the just right characteristics for our kind of life. Now, can there be variations on that? Could gravity be a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker and still result in uh, sentient beings of whom God could say, uh, yes, we've made him in our image? Um, I have no qualms. If at some point we meet an alien species and we find out that they are uh, sapient, as we are. And by the way, they're probably already a big fan of your works. You you have, what, 20, 20 books, 24, 24 novels? About 75. About 75, uh, yeah. So they probably yeah, already know all about you. But, but my guess is they have not, <laughs> and they wouldn't care. Uh, it's one of those things that, that, you know, every now and then there'll be Mormon writers, especially beginners, who think that God is dictating their books to them. They think they're inspired. And that means that they can never become good because it means they won't revise anything. If God gave it to you, how do you learn how to do it better? Uh, and so they become the worst writers, and they, they don't have a career, so they make no difference yeah. so speaking, uh, to, speaking, the, to the world of literature. Scott, speaking of putting your stories together, do you ever think what kind of ethical dilemma would I like to uh, you know, depict in a, in a story as a basis for something? Well, um, I, I can't really think of any of mine that began that way. The closest one maybe was Speaker for the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but they always end up with an ethical dilemma. In fact, it, it was pointed out to me by a wise critic about 30 years ago. Hey, by the way, that, Scott, we, we have a very special caller. Uh, we have Nicholas Sansbury Smith uh, that is tuning in, and he wants to say hi. Well, hi. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put him on. Nick, are okay, you there? Cool. Nick, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I can kind of hear you. All right, Nick, you have the there, great... Can you hear me? You got Scott on the phone. I can. Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, now I can. Great. Perfect. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. I, I really appreciate having you 
pitch in here. You, you know, uh, Nicholas, the, the uh, of course, I really enjoyed meeting you at that uh, uh, event for Blackstone uh, last year, but um, what I really enjoyed most, I've got to say, was meeting your books, because I gave up on reading science fiction about 25 years ago. I used to review all of the short fiction published in uh, in the field all the time. So I was reading everything, and I burned out. I just, I'd get two pages into something and say, well, he's doing one of these, he's doing one of those. So I got two pages into, uh, now, I'm, now I'm going up on the title of the book, the first of this latest series. What is it? Helldivers. Right, right, the Helldivers series. Wow. I can't yep. believe that I had to work to memorize your name, too. I'm old and named. <laughs> old. You got a pretty, head. we were just talking about the universe, Nick, before you do, tuned in. Well, the oh, universe okay. is, is lucky to include Helldivers because well, thank I was you. two pages thank in you so and much. I thought, well, I thought this is not only smart science fiction, it's great storytelling. If it weren't science fiction, it would still be a great story. And if it weren't a great story, it would still be great science fiction, good world well, creation, thank you so you know, much. good future, extra, but it, it's both. Great story, and, and I've read the sequels. They are amazing. I can't believe that the series is not slackening in any way. So I'm honored that you would want to uh, phone in on this, this broadcast because oh, I, I'm, uh, you I'm are the next absolutely. generation. Well, thank you. I, I, didn't know, I didn't realize it was you speaking at first uh, because I couldn't hear anything, and then I realized, so... Uh, it's just an absolute honor to talk to you again, and, and it was meeting you in New York last year. And um, So when Dustin asked if I'd call in with a few questions, I jumped at a chance. And, and I have a few if you guys uh, want to jump into those. Go uh, for it, Nick. Yeah, let, let's uh, let's talk to Scott. Okay, so I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but Blackstone Publishing gave me an arc of your newest, Lost and Found. That's through them. That's through that They're publishing that one. And then also... Yeah. Um, I was just browsing Amazon the other day, and I saw a book called Extinct, which looks like it comes out in 2020, March, perhaps, something like that. So I had a couple yeah. questions. I'll start with that one, because that's, that's my genre. I absolutely love post-apocalyptic fiction, and the, just the blurb itself captured my attention in a way that most books don't. And then I saw your name on it, and I got really excited. So I'm just wondering if you can tell... Uh, tell me and tell listeners anything about the plot of that book. Sure. Uh, it doesn't look in fact. That's, that's what I've been writing on today. Is that extinct novel should have been done, but uh, again, my sleep problems make it so that when I do get up and start to write, I fall asleep at the keyboard, and then when I think, well, I'm sleepy, then I go to bed, then I can't sleep. So you know, it's just sort of an anti. It's the universe. It's my body telling me it's coming my writing you. career is over. So I'm trying to I'm trying to defeat that. Uh, but Extinct is the story of people who uh, have come to, come to uh, have to deal with an invasion of Earth by aliens whose purpose is not, at first it seems, just to kill indiscriminately. But no, what they're actually doing is that they are uh, carrying a, uh, a parasite, a symbiotic sentient being that takes over hosts. And so until this sentient being learns to take over humans, uh, they're killing like crazy using the Karik, the uh, aliens that they already possess. And so our story actually begins with uh, humans who wake up to a world where there are no humans except a, a bare handful who are possessed by these symbiotic uh, aliens. 
and so the human race was seemingly wiped out completely, and uh, the humans are extinct. But yet another group of aliens are rebuilding us from DNA and from stored memories uh, and bringing us into the world. And so the heroes of the story are the the humans who have to deal with each other, of course, and deal with, well, actually, it ends up being three, four, five sets of aliens uh, by the time we're done, um, and finding themselves used as tools by both species, one way or another. How do you maintain our independence as humans? Uh, it's full of ethical dilemmas, as we were talking about, but I really love it. Now, I have to tell you that it's not me as the sole author. Uh, this was a, sto- a story idea that Aaron Johnston, who's collaborated with me on the Formic Wars series, that Aaron and I came up with together. And then we sold it as a TV series, which people can download now. Uh, it's at BYU TV. Um, and if you just. So can you repeat that one more time for us, Scott? It's, it's extinct. And then it's at BYU TV. And you can download the whole 10 episode first season. Uh, they had a change of management, and the management abandoned the series because they didn't invent it. Uh, and so we didn't get to take it further, but the books will go all the way through the story. So whereas uh, Aaron previously has uh, done the original uh, writing from an idea and a story we both came up together with together, this time I'm novelizing his scripts. Uh, the first two volumes are based on that 10-episode series, and then I move out into the uh, the rest of the story so that we can bring it to some kind of fruition so that the uh, trilogy of extinct novels will be complete. Wow, that sounds fascinating. It's a fascinating idea yeah, it's a in concept. many different ways. I can see it going well, off in a lot of different directions. It, it really does, exciting. but i got to tell you, nothing in this story is anywhere near as scary as the first three pages of Helldivers, okay? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I agree with that one. It was kind of messed up, there, Nick. I don't know what, so what's in your no, head. I mean, you can't pick up Helldivers if you're going to bed and going to read in bed because you will not sleep. You <laughs> will be reading until it's done, and uh, you'll feel rewarded. You'll be glad you did, and you'll call in sick the next day. <clears throat> because, And it's worth it. You won't regret it ever. So, oh, thank so you. take your stick, take your sick day. Nick, yeah, Nick, do you realize you Orson's Got Car just told you I'm one of your biggest fans? Yeah, I mean, when he told, he talked to me about this in New York last year, and I was just shocked. I'm sure my wife said my, my jaw was hanging open a little bit, and uh, I just, you know, it's growing up reading his books and then meeting meeting you and then hearing this is it's an it's a great affirmation especially because you know i I started writing as a hobby and i don't want to talk about myself today but i'll just say uh that it's been a long journey um well it feels like a long journey but this really helps build a a younger newer writer's confidence to hear that from a veteran that's so well respected and pretty much the master of the genre so well really all i have to do is just tell the truth about uh about that series uh, so that's that's not even hard. But here's the thing, Nick. You've run into the same. They they were talking to me earlier about writer fame, about being famous as a writer, and I, I have to kind of mock that idea. You know as well as I do that being well known for writing is like being unknown. Uh, mm-hmm. Nobody Absolutely. recognizes you in the grocery store. Nobody stops you on the street. 
There's the famous story of when Paul Newman stopped writing autographs. It's when he was at a urinal in a public place, <laughs> and somebody walked up while he was peeing and asked for his autograph. Boy, now, man, that's, uh, that's a weird kind of thing. To that. But, well, people can be rude, can be demanding. I'm sure they were asking for an autograph as soon as he had washed his hands after he finished. Uh, but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, that's not a time that most men wish to yeah, be. That's, that's not the right moment to say, hey, man, how you doing? I know who so you are. So that's when Paul yeah. Newman decided he would never sign another autograph, and he never did. Wow. Uh, that was it. He was done. But, by but the way, that, for, for those listening thing. in, uh, we have uh, author uh, Nicholas uh, Sansbury-Smith on the, on the line. He was on last week's show. Uh, so if you missed it, please tune in. So again, sorry, gentlemen, didn't mean to cut you guys off. No, I'm sorry that I missed that. But but you know, there there is there are times when when we get a touch of fame, but it's it's not even going to Barnes and Noble. You know, I have yet to have a single bookstore clerk or employee recognize my name on my credit card. Now, admittedly, mm-hmm. they don't look at it closely, but. Um, you know, I, I, every now and then I've seen another author walk into a bookstore as if they thought they were on the red carpet at the Oscars with cameras clicking. And it's always made me a little sad because they do not live on the same planet as the rest of us. The, the, on, on the planet we live on, there's actor fame, there's athlete fame, there's pop musician fame. But way down in parentheses at the bottom of the page, there's writer fame. I remember being at a at a book fair in Los Angeles at UCLA on the UCLA campus, and in the booth, the tent next to mine, I had a good line. I had a good group of people coming there to have my book signed, um, because I, by then I had I was known for several books that, that had been popular. But at the tent next to mine was Jack Palance, uh, who was not even an A-list actor, but he had just done. Uh, that Dude Ranch movie, whatever it's called, I can't remember now. City Slickers. Uh, City, City Slickers, that's right, it. Right. And, and uh, he had come out with a book of poetry, and his line made mine look pathetic because people were coming to him because he was really famous, not just writer famous. Nobody was going to come to my booth except people who had read my books. But people who were never going to read Jack Palance's poetry they would never open the book again except to show off the autograph to their friends. They were coming there to be in the presence of the actor and get a signature. And that that made it very clear to me what the difference is between fame and what happens to writers. Any writer who thinks they're having a hard time dealing with fame, the only problem they're really having is they thought there'd be more of it and they're disappointed. Mm. Uh, that's that's yep. incredible insight. Yep. I, I see that a lot too. Especially with the new internet age of writers because a lot of I've networked in both traditional publishing and indie publishing, and the indie publishers often are outselling the traditional publishers only because their books are, you know, priced so much lower in the way they market on Amazon. But some of them have gained quite nor well quite the reputation and just popularity on sites like Facebook. So I feel like there might be a, a switch possibly in the future with that just because of how accessible writers are on social media but definitely in person it's it's way different than that well and there it'll be a there'll be a good result of that if being on social media teaches writers the lesson that our current president has never learned uh, which is how to be civil uh, because mm-hmm. writers are novelists are usually introverts and many of them lack social skills because they don't like groups of people. They don't like being with them. They're uncomfortable. They're awkward. They're nervous. They're frightened. And so I've seen some who treat their readers really quite rudely. 
mm-hmm. often inadvertently, but sometimes because they're feeling pressed upon, they're feeling irritable, and anything will set them off. Um, and and online, if the writer gets a reputation as a troll, that's going to hurt his sales. Yeah. So how do you oh, deal with that, Scott? How do you find the balance? You know, Nick and I talked about it last week, but how do you find that balance? Uh, I imagine there's lots of people around the world that want your attention, and they'll probably send you 800 messages to try to get it. Oh, but I'm I'm hated by as many as, as love my books, because I dared to get involved in politics uh, and had an opinion that turned out to be politically incorrect. And even though on the particular issue we won every single vote that it was ever put to among the regular people, uh, the courts brought that cause to have, make the other side triumph, and they're still not through punishing me. They never will be. Hmm. And so... Uh, you know, we live in a completely intolerant time, a really vicious time. And so uh, I find that, the, that I actually get more attention from people who hate me than from people who like my books. People who like my books tend to be communitarian and friendly and warm and open. Uh, true liberals, in the uh, old sense of the word. Uh, and uh, I find that my opponents, who claim to be tolerant, are in fact the most intolerant people in the United States now. It's just an awkward, ugly time. And uh, we'll, we'll get over it eventually or tear ourselves apart. Uh, it'll be sad if it's the latter. I hope it'll be the former that we just well, grew yeah, up. Yeah, I, I hope not because we'll hell divers. We'll, we'll have to post up. Post up apocalyptic. Yeah, so, so Nick, what do you think about that? Do you, do you foresee us at some point actually tearing ourselves apart because of these conflicts that we face that, uh, that Scott just mentioned? Uh, I think about that often. I really try to stay out of politics and try to keep a positive mind, especially choice, Nick. Wise choice. Well, I I just at this point in my career, um, I'm I try to be a pretty positive person in general, and and I know that if I say anything on either side, you know what will happen. Um, but what I do, I do still see a lot of what's going on. I see authors on both sides of my genre that have alienated half of their audiences, and I've seen some of them truly turn into trolls. Um, some that I was friends with in the past. And I just try to avoid all that sort of controversy. But I do fear, I think one of the biggest threats that faces our society right now is just misinformation and fake news. Because that's another thing I see a lot on social media, where someone will post something that's absolutely not accurate. And to me, it's obvious. But to someone that might not be familiar with social media or not know how to use or not have basic research skills, they think it's truth. And there's some things that are so hateful that can incite such anger in an individual. That's what I fear causing violence. So I think that's the the biggest problem we face because – and then you also have social media, the giants, trying to regulate fake news and banning people from both sides. And how do you handle that? They only ban people from one side. Come on. Come on. It's it's one of those sad things. But but, uh, look, the thing that we have to deal with is – what are we doing in our stories? Uh, mm-hmm. And the ideology, the the beliefs that I have that made me uh, made me what I call a Moynihan liberal, a Moynihan Democrat, in 1976. Um, I still, by the way, have the same beliefs. It's just that Moynihan in 1976 would have been drummed out of the Democratic Party of today. But uh, uh, those things still hold true, and it's all over in my fiction. Uh, you'll never find anything in my fiction that is calculated or even inadvertently 
alienating to any reader, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, based yeah, on, I've on, noticed that. Yeah, because um, it's and about it can, inclusion, com- building community. Right, and that kind of. I have one other question for you. Um, I think might, this might be a good time to kind of dovetail into that, and it's about your characters, because you know, ever since I read Ender's Game, you have this talent to in developing characters that are younger characters, children characters. And it's something that is absolutely unique from everything that I've read, um, including in Lost and Found. Uh, you know, from the opening pages of that book, you have this rebellious kid, teenager, or maybe maybe she's not that old, but um, it's just the development of her character right of the opening of that book is just unbelievable. And it's almost like you can transport your mind into a kid and write this entertaining, you know, realistic developed character that just jumps off the page. So I'm, I'm always been curious how you could do that. Where, where that skill, I don't know if, where your inspiration it, comes from. It just from began or because like of my uncertainty and incompetence as a writer at the beginning of my career. It's, it's because I love biography and, you know, a well-written biography is a treasure to me, but but uh, I had no idea how to structure a novel. So the obvious structure seemed to me to structure it as a fictional biography. Uh, but then I began to realize that um, the thing that's always weakest in most biographies is the childhood, because children don't leave a documentary trail like famous adults do. And so we get these people who seem to appear full-blown at the age of 20, or 18 or whatever, and uh, we have no idea how they got there. But I realized when I'm writing fiction, I can account for how they get there. I can show how what their character was as a child and how, how they shaped the world around them, uh, built connections and so forth. And so it's not that I set out to write about children, because I don't. I, in every work of mine, they grow up. They become adults right, who yeah. do adult things. But... but uh, I start in the place where biography just doesn't go very well. Yeah, we actually no said in, in our book, as well as uh, we have this kind of as a mantra of the show, that everyone has a story. Uh, and I like the fact that you didn't discount that well, children have their own stories. And for most of them, well, well some of them, it turns into trauma. Others, it, it, it makes the best uh, of their, uh, it, the best memories of their lives. And others, it, it, it becomes the trauma well, that, that follows them. I'm going to say something pretty radical here. You talk about the best memories of your lives, and yes, I look back and I have memories from which I could construct a dandelion wine childhood. But what we forget is that even in dandelion wine, which is Ray Bradbury's brilliant peon to to, uh, childhood, uh, that kid is there without his parents. He goes home to grandma and grandpa. Uh, Something's wrong. Something is not working right in his life. Um, And so he doesn't dwell on that. And I look back on my own childhood, and yes, I, you know, climbing in creeks, building forts with my friends, uh, bicycling all over the city of Santa Clara, California. It was just, I had a great time, but it was also a terrible time. My mom was a screamer. We lived our lives trying our best not to set her off. The worst thing in the world was to get mom upset. And whenever she got upset, she vilified my father, whether he was present or not because he was at fault for everything wrong with the, with the kids. I grew up constantly hearing the, the sound, the, the harangue against all men, all boys. Um, it's a miracle that, that any of us uh, were able to, to grow up with our manhood intact. And yet, 
My mother was a wonderful, enthusiastic person who gave great gifts to the people around her. And because she only showed that screamer face to her own family, no one else knew. She was beloved by other young people at church. By I mean, she was just a great person, except when she let that fly. Now, that's a hard thing to grow up with. And all of my brothers and I have uh, paid a price for her obsessions. Uh, I, in some ways, I paid the least heavy uh, because I was the one who could talk her down from the cliff. Nobody else could. Uh, nobody else tried, though, I will say. Yeah, so how do you uh, manage that? P- and we, we like to refer to it as PTSD. How do you manage that, Scott? Well, here's what I found out. While she was alive, that was still my job talking her down, finding ways to heal what was wrong, and I, I did. Her, a lot of her pain came from her father as a, uh, who abandoned the family for many years, but who was a movie producer, who produced a movie that was notoriously a failure uh, in her community. And so she dealt with the shame of that. I was able to take a print of that movie, have it restored, and she was able, uh, near the end of her life, to attend a lecture where a scholar at Brigham Young University uh, gave that movie its proper place in the history of film. And so she felt that her uh, her dad was vindicated, and after that event, never heard her yelling again. That anger was kept tamed. So I felt like I could give her those gifts, but then when she died, that's when I discovered the deep turmoil of rage inside me at the gross unfairness of her treatment of her own children, the utter lack of mercy she had for, for little kids, for crying little kids. She could not relent from her anger. And I found myself and still find myself dealing with my long pent up and subsumed rage, which is bizarre. And my dad was a, not a cold man, but a cool man. That is, he wasn't uh, self-expressive. He was an introvert, but he and I had many good times together. And toward the end of his life, we had one evening where he told me the whole story of his time in World War II. And that was wonderful. I kick myself that I didn't record it. But, uh, you know, now I find that I love my dad even more, more emotionally than I did while he was alive. Yeah. It's just a bizarre thing yeah. that, that our relationships with our parents, even when they're dead, are still central to our lives. Well, when I write children into a novel, I give them whatever parents they have or don't have, and whatever adults are, are part of their, their life, part of their shaping, and try to make them believable and real the way that real families function and dysfunction. Yeah, so with, with so, that trauma of your childhood, how did you find the way? I mean, we have an audience around the world, and, and by the way, when we, we talked to Nick last week and his show uh, was, uh, was recently aired, one of the questions we asked Nick was, who's the toughest person you know? And Nick said, oh, it was my grandpa. How did you hyper-focus when you were carrying such trauma? And then that leads into the next question of, in your life, who has been the strongest person that helped you along your journey? Well, let's, let's you know, go, go back to the coping. I didn't think I was coping. I thought I was the center of the universe. Uh, I was my mother's favorite child, along with all of the crap. Um, and, you know, she pretended that it wasn't true, but 
when you pick one of your kids and call him your golden boy, I'm sorry, the message is not going to be missed. And yes, I was blonde, yellow-haired uh, as a kid, but that was a terrible thing to do to me in my relationship with my siblings. But uh, my biggest trauma came, in fact, from my older brother, who was vile uh, and has not stopped. And so I simply had to cut him out of my life. The thing is, you cope with things by avoiding problems wherever you can. That was most of my family's reaction to my mom was just, don't get her upset. Don't set her off. Don't get her wound up. And, you know, but but when it comes to, to my life, to my work, uh, I was I was quite solipsistic. It was all there just to serve whatever it is I wanted to do with it. So if I wanted to put on a play, I would put on a play. And that happened when I was a theater student in a program that only allowed you to put on one one one-act play during your four years. Well, I put on about a dozen. And every time I put on a play for a class that didn't have have it in the curriculum, because none of them did, uh, the faculty would get together and ban performing plays, producing plays as part of that class. Uh, They kept undoing, trying to undo everything I did while I was there. And then a couple of years after I left, they remade their whole program into something much more like what I had actually given myself. But that was always my strategy. You know, I faced a lot of opposition because I'm an annoying person. Um, I, I walk into the room not as if I think I'm famous, but as if I think I'm in charge. And, and that whatever it is that I decide should happen is actually going to happen. Now, that meant that I had a lot of, a lot of uh, actors in my theater program who were eager to be in the next Scott Card play. And I, I was able to start with zero capital. I, I, I raised money for my plays by selling season tickets to my six-play repertory theater company and found a zero-rent place to put them on, an outdoor amphitheater behind the state mental hospital in, in uh, Provo, Utah. And I ran two summers there, and it did not turn a profit, <clears throat> but the losses were manageable. And uh, and we had huge attendance, lots of people, and I had a great cast. We put on great shows. Uh, I had good directors directing uh, some of them, and, and I directed some myself. And it happened for only one reason, because I decided it would. Now, it couldn't have worked if nobody had followed along, but they did, because people are often just looking for somebody with a strong idea of what's going to happen, and they'll pitch in, they'll help, they want to be part of it. And we did excellent work for two summers. I'm very proud of it. Sounds like and, you guys did. Uh, hmm? Yeah, I was saying it sounds, like, yeah, it sounds like you guys did, uh, did a lot of great work. We, we did, yeah. we did. I had to close it because uh, I was moving up to Salt Lake City for my job, and that was just too far a reach. Uh, and many other reasons as well, but but it's still one of the happiest chapters in my life. Look, my training as a writer came from playwriting. It's the best training in the world, because if there's a way to read your lines wrong, the actors will find it. Um, they aren't trying to read it wrong. They just will. If it's ambiguous, if it can be read in more than one way, if it can be read with an emphasis on the wrong word, they'll do it. And then you sit there at those early rehearsals and you rewrite to actor-proof the lines. Then you can watch the audience. Do watch. you hear this, Nick? This is going to be you, by the way, one day. You're going to, you're going yes. to have uh, yes, I'm your own movies. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, your dialogue is already excellent, Nick. You don't, you don't need this. But, yeah, by the way, he's but, also uh, my age. So, you know, Scott, nah, Nick and I are both 35. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good age. You're still kids. That's great. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you're an athlete, you're over the hill. Yeah, kind of old at that point, writer, right? Yeah, well, but if you if you're a writer, you're still just catching your your first breath there. Um, it feels like a long road to where you are at 35, but trust me, there's a lot more miles yet to go, and I'm still barely holding on. Uh, you know, I, I, each book is its own new project. And while some of the things I learned doing earlier books apply, most do not. I have to reinvent my skill as a writer, my craft, with every new story that I plan to tell. But writing scenes in plays and having them performed in front of an audience taught me how to write a scene. That's why when I first wrote a serious, practical science fiction story with the intent to sell and the need to make money to help pay off the slight debts from my theater company. It was Ender's Game and uh, won the John W. Campbell Award for me and uh, it didn't didn't win the, uh, the Hugo as a short story. It eventually did as a novel. But that's why that was my first story. If you look at that original story of Ender's Game, it's basically dialogue and stage directions plus a a lot of dipping into viewpoint, the the thing that fiction does best. And so my playwriting was my training. Uh, you know, I've had people say, well, how does it feel to have your first story come out of the gate as being so popular and successful? Success. The answer, it wasn't my first story. It was like my 20th. I'd written so many full-length plays. You were prepared. And at least, yeah. at least I wrote Ender's Game after I got over my kick of writing plays in verse. But Shakespeare was my teacher. Uh, I, I read everything, and uh, I was writing five-act plays because he did. He never understood the form, and neither do I. But uh, yeah, nevertheless... Well, you shortchange yourself there. You, you, you still have well, your mojo about you. Well, but that's the, you know, when you're writing in blank verse, it changes you. If everything's an iambic pentameter, then you're, you begin to hear the music of the English language. And uh, yes, you spring the rhythm now and then. Because besides Shakespeare, I also love Gerard Manley Hopkins, who broke rhythm deliberately for effect, and he taught me control of language. So that when I came to fiction, I don't even think about style. It doesn't even cross my mind. And yet I've been found to write conclusions of stories that are basically in blank verse. I didn't think of them that way. I didn't write them that way. But they scan uh, because I think in blank verse now. Wow. All right. So final question for you guys because we're just about out of time. Uh, so for you, Scott, who's the toughest person you know? And then same question for you, Nick. I, I'm going to go ahead and, and hark back to what I said before. It's my dad. It's your dad. That's. Uh, I don't know many men who could have put up with the abuse he took from my mom. But he taught me this. Good men stay. Wow. And we were never left alone. We were never left without recourse. And even though he could barely handle her, uh, and even though the abuse was terrible, he knew that his children knew who he really was. Wow. And, well said. And he, he, was able, he was able to endure. And so I have to say, as I said to him near, in the closing weeks of his life, I said, Dad, everything I know about being a man, I learned from you. Wow, that's that's very prophetic. And Nick, uh, for the uh, for the people that have not heard your show from last week yet, uh, would you repeat again? Life's tough, but in your case, who was the toughest person in your life? 
that was uh, my grandpa, Jake, was his nickname, but it's Angelo Angren. He's an Italian immigrant. Came over here to work in the coal mines. Uh, later went to, well, actually, he dropped out of eighth grade to do that. Then he went to World War II, came back, um, and started working on building houses and ended up retiring as uh, a homeowner, home builder, excuse me. So uh, that's probably, there's there's no one that really compares them. The way that he pretty much spent his whole life working, I mean, even when he had the money not to, always taking care of everyone else. He was really the you know patriarch of our family. Um, and I only got to know him up until I was in college. He had Alzheimer's for the last probably 10 years of his life. But uh, he really was the kind of <clears throat> the guy that taught me what working hard really means. And it's really helped inspire me throughout my career and just everything that I do on the side from not just writing. Well, well, thanks for sharing that with us. And final words you have for the show, Scott? I just, uh, I'm glad that, that there are people like, like Nick uh, and like me who still know how to tell a story that has a hero in it. Yeah. And by the way, it also uh, takes courage because this world's full of lots of interesting people, lots of interesting oh, people yeah. that will judge you and, and probably makes all sorts of threats about you guys. So for, from me to you, I got to tell you, thank you for having that courage to put up with the good fans and the ones that probably should not be uh, out in the public. And, and thanks for being a role model to authors, newer authors like me. Uh, it's just, you know, having the opportunity to talk to you is just really uh, motivational. I, I don't know really how else to put it. I mean, I don't get the opportunity at all to talk to authors on your level or, or authors that have told stories that are truly classics. And so thank you again for well, that's, thank that you is for very picking kind my book, too. But you're, you're already in that category yourself, too. So uh, good for you, and I'm, I'm glad to, to watch you because I know that as long as I don't die, I still get to read more of your book. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't die. Do, do us a favor, because we're going to have you both on the show, uh, and let's, uh, let's shoot again so we can come up with some interesting and different kind of questions for you both where we can hash this out and, and we can talk further on it. Sounds great. All right. Great. Thank you again, gentlemen. Life's Thank tough, you. but Scott's father is tougher. <laughs> Once again, I'd like to thank the POI Institute for being a Life's Tough sponsor. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. And tell them Life's Tough sent you. It's been fantastic to delve into the world of science fiction with our very special guest this week, Orson Scott Card, and with our special caller or author, Nicholas Sansbury Smith, who you heard on last week's podcast. Gerald, any comments you have for today's show? Well, I'm sure we could have gone a lot longer with, with these fellows. Um, as you know, Dustin, I, I do some writing. I haven't done science fiction writing, but I can see that I'd have to use three names to... Uh, yeah, we're going to throw three in there. To, to, to be a science fiction writer. Yeah, that, that's. I, I think that must kind of come with the territory of having three names in it. will help right. to inspire it and also makes it a little more complicated. In the beginning of the show, we were 
talking to Orson uh, Scott Card about what should we call you, Card Scott Orson, and we, we pick somewhere in the middle. So that wraps up our show for today. I'd like to thank our very special guest, Orson Scott Card, for sharing an entertaining and informative hour with us. It takes a lot of bravery and a lot of courage to admit what you think, what you feel, and at times give your opinions on a broadcast around the world where some people would judge Scott by his beliefs and others will say, I believe in the same things he does. What I would ask all of you is to use this time, use the moment, the things you've heard, to come to your own conclusions. What is it you believe and why do you believe it? Do you believe it because of indoctrination, because where you were born is what you're going to believe? Or do you have the courage to step out and write down your story? Everyone has a story. The stories we all hear, they're as varied as the people who tell them. And each time I hear someone's personal account, I do not frame it as something that was more horrible than my own story or something that was not as bad as what I went through. You just heard Orson Scott Card talk about his mother and the trauma that he faced along the way. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. To the person who lived it, that story is just as devastating as any other. I ask you to use your story, no matter what it is, to give others hope. It's quite liberating to move beyond your past. Don't keep your story to yourself and allow it to eat away at you. Instead, consider how your experience can benefit somebody else. Your story may be just what it takes to help someone in your circle or in our community to get through a tipping point moment, an instance when that person either chooses to continue be, to be a victim and when that person manages to find the strength to transcend a particular situation. Please subscribe to our show. Visit lifestough.com, L-I-F-E-S-T-O-U-G-H.com. And be sure to join us every week, same time, same place, for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussions. Remember, everyone has a story. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Before we turn off the show, I'm going to ask my partner here, Gerald Levin, to give some final words. And then with that, we'll let you all go. Well, Dustin, I, I would have to say that, um, as you know, life's tough, but certainly science fiction writers seem to be tougher. Yeah, most definitely tougher. I know for me, it would be hard to put myself out there, like Scott just did, and like Nick did. Well, thanks for listening, and have a great week. Next week will be another broadcast, another lively discussion, a conversation where you might not agree with us, or you might find that your thought process might change. That, in fact, there could be life, not just here, but someplace else. Or that maybe one day that life is a little bit more grown up than we think and comes back to Earth. Or at some point we might destroy the Earth and we might have to build special ships and we can hang out in them. Well, that's Hell Divers by Nicholas Sansbury Smith. Tune in and we'll find out together what's involved with life. So from Dustin Planholt, and for Gerald Levin and the entire Life's Tough team, this is Dustin Plantle signing off. Remember, life's tough, but Scott's dad is definitely tougher. Thank you again, everybody. <laughs>